Hello and welcome to the Build with Clay podcast. I am your host, Clay Davis. This podcast is designed to introduce you to people from across the world who have one thing in common. They want to grow in their life and inspire others. You'll get a front row seat to hear about how they define their mindset and their purpose. We'll unearth their habits, their failures, and learnings throughout their journey. And this will allow you to take those habits, those failures, and those learnings and apply them to your personal growth journey, no matter where you're trying to build yourself and grow. This podcast is designed for you, so thank you for being here. Prepare to meet interesting people, hear fun stories, learn something new, and plan to leave inspired. On this episode, we build with Joel Fleming and Zach Stone. This pair founded Devereaux, a boutique real estate investment firm located in Raleigh, North Carolina, which specializes in the acquisition and management of multifamily and commercial properties. I have known Joel for over a decade, and as you will hear in the episode, have known Zach for years, but met in person for the first time during the recording of this episode. We chat about how they founded the company, the development of a growth strategy, how no one knows what's actually going on, how to artfully ask others for money, and so much more. We had a lot of fun in this episode, which is jam-packed with actionable tips, interesting stories, and plenty of laughs. Please enjoy this fun and wide-ranging conversation with Joel and Zach. Pumped to have you guys here. To set the stage, we are in my office. It's the first time that I've ever done a in-person podcast, got some new gear, thanks to some uh, advice on the interwebs of what to get. So we're going to hopefully uh, have this release. We're sitting in the, in here. we got a fan going. we got shirts on. We do not have pants on. Pantsless. <laughs> Pantsless. Looking out at 100-degree heat. Just excited to have you guys here. So we got Zach and Joel here from the Devera team. Welcome to the pod, guys. Thanks, Clay. Excited to be here. Yeah, man. Glad to have you guys here. Um, I've known Joel for... A very long time. I haven't done the math, but it's probably going on 20 years that we've known of one another and yeah, then just slowly gotten closer over time because of my brother, Jamie, and you guys are really close. And then Zach is actually a real person. I've haven't known, I've known of Zach for, yeah, I think we've known each other now in, in person for 10 minutes, but I've known of Zach for probably five years. Is that a, roughly the time? At I think. least, yeah five, six years and just have never met in person. So it was a big leap to get you in the room here, Zach. I try not to let people see my long hair. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's some of it. <laughs> yeah. I think for most people, they assume that Zach might not be real or he's just this guy that lives in a back room that I just talk about. Cause so many people that I do talk about him with just, I've never met him and are like, is he actually a person or I just, you know, there's a lot of mystique around it. That's for sure. Yeah. Hey, that, it takes time to cultivate that mystique. So I appreciate you breaking through for me here today and for the listeners. Pumped to have you guys in the room today. I want to get to know you guys a little bit more. Um, so I got some silly get to know you questions. First, you guys are about to go on a road trip. You guys are going to go on a Devereaux road trip and you're going to go to a convenience store and you're going to get one drink and one snack to sustain you for four hours. What are you grabbing? Mine's pretty simple. I'm going... Uh Red Bull Zero Sugar for the drink or Gatorade Zero Sugar uh, and snack. It depends on what where the road trip is to. Wow, location-based snacks. Oh, yeah. It's a whole system, a whole, like, depending on where you're going, the activity. 
You're going to the mountains of North Carolina. I'll keep it really simple. It's probably a, yeah, a, a, at that point, it's probably a Gatorade Zero, and I'm going Popcorners. Popcorners? Uh-huh. Wow. Ooh. Zach? I like that. Yeah, Popcorners are good. I would go with the, um, the Volcano Water. I love that. It's in the fancy packaging. It's like $4. I don't ever get it, except when I'm in a gas station on a road trip. And uh, honestly, probably like the piece of fruit if I'm at Sheets. If I'm not at Sheets, probably a bag of nuts. And I love that I have never met Zach in person. And then prior to figuring this out, or prior to seeing Zach, I've set this question to ask. Would you rather have hair that's too long or no hair at all? And I'm, I'm looking at Zach now with his long ponytail. <laughs> so I think I know his answer. Do you just want to go to Joel here? I mean, it's obvious for me. Yeah. Oh, I would definitely rather have hair that's too long for sure. So you guys are both going to go ponytail. I don't, that's actually, t- I'm going to, I'll back that up a little bit. As someone that has had long hair now for, again, as long as I haven't had a real job, um, I may go with, with no hair on that one, honestly. It's really hard to maintain. And my hair doesn't look very good, but it's tough. You know, it, it's hard to wash and it goes everywhere. And I, I, I would maybe go with, if given the, the, two, the two extremes, I'd probably go with, with, uh, with the lack of hair. Yeah. I'm thinking hair down to like your feet sort of thing, right? We're, we're talking extremes here, not like a reasonably cut long hair. We're talking, we're talking way down, you know. Especially, it's all relative, right? And so extremely long hair for you at this stage would possibly be past your knees. Yeah, because this is kind of a pain in the butt, honestly. Like, and I don't really do anything. I haven't had a haircut in, again, I don't remember. Seven-ish years, maybe, something like that? I'm not sure. Last one. Would you rather have 10-foot long legs or 10-foot long arms? Definitely 10-foot long arms. I feel like it'd be really hard to walk with 10 foot long legs. Whereas you could really utilize the long arms and it not be, you think it would be easy to walk with 10 foot long arms. Yeah. You just, you figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. Just be an athlete. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I would definitely use the long arms way more than I would use the long legs. Where would you put them as you were walking? You know, some of us just things come naturally and I just know that, Based on my performance daily, I would just, I would figure it out. Zach? Yeah, I would definitely say legs. I think the legs are built in a way that it makes sense if they're bigger. Like, because I'm imagining 10 foot, but then proportionately muscular. So like, they're, they're 10 feet long, but they're also like, they're big. Like, it's like you're a tree almost. I just imagine you have a lot of power. You're a T-Rex. Yeah, I mean, I guess, but like, I imagine all of the like upper body problems that would that would accompany like arms that are really really long, like it would like I feel like it'd mess your back up, like just mess everything up. Well, not for Joel though, because apparently he's going to be just fine. Yeah, exactly. Y'all get it. The legs though, yeah, yeah. I think that would make sense. You could run so fast. Well, you're also you're not driving a car anymore with either of those situations. No, and you're not going to be in. Zach's situation, you're not living in a normal house either. No. Because you are going to be, what's your torso, like three feet? Yeah, but we have to, we have to scale that up even more because, like, you're, you're talking about, like, all the other systems of your body have to be changed to accompany that, right? Because, like, if you had a 10-foot, if you had 10-foot long legs, your heart would have to pump so much harder. Like, everything would get all messed up. Yeah. 
this is a glimpse into what the rest of this podcast is going to be. It's just, you know, you guys trying to figure it out. This is how your different brains work, but it works well together. I could sit here and open that door right now and let Whitney in. Whereas you would be folded up like a pretzel sitting in that chair. Correct. But just imagine my capacity to run. It'd be incredible. Like I take these steps and just, I would cover so much distance. I'd be, it'd be phenomenal. You couldn't run. It'd be impossible to run with 10 foot long arms. I would save so many kittens out of trees. I'd be so popular. You'd be an ape versus like a majestic giraffe or some other equally tall creature like a T-Rex. I would choose ape over giraffe 10 out of 10 times. Yeah, but your arms would be so long, like your muscles would be really long, so you couldn't really, I just don't even see how that would function, like on a normal side. Well, anyways, yeah. Hey, Zach, rumor is, is that you sleep on the floor. That is true, yes. Yeah, I picked that one up from somebody years ago that was having back problems, and uh, at the time I was reading uh, Epictetus, which is a, a famous Stoic philosopher from uh, ancient, ancient times. And the whole idea of Epictetus was that you train yourself for impoverished conditions. So that includes dressing in coarse clothing. Um, I think he or Seneca said eating, funny enough, just beans, which was another part of what my wife and I were doing uh, years ago, and, um, and sleeping in an uncomfortable place. And the idea is it kind of conditions you for poverty. And if you know what it's like to live with nothing, you stop fearing having nothing. And so when you don't fear that anymore, it kind of untethers you and you start, uh, you start, well, for me, it enables me to take maybe appropriate amounts of risk where I'm not as concerned about losing everything or being in a, in a state where I have to sleep on the floor or sleep in a tent. Um, that's the philosophical reason. The practical reason was, uh, when we go camping or rather when we anticipated going camping, uh, if you go for a weekend and you don't sleep on the ground, you can't sleep for that whole weekend. So if you sleep on the floor all the time, when you go camping, you're just on another floor. And so you sleep fine. Um, funny thing, ask me how many times we've been camping since we've done that. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> uh, but the stoicism piece definitely uh, was a component of that, which kind of bled into other aspects of my life. But, um, but yeah, subjecting yourself to a mild degree of discomfort um, from time to time, I think, has some benefits. Uh, so that was a piece of that. I have many questions. I'm going to try to not ask all of them. Do you have a pillow? Have a pillow. Yes. Have a pillow. Have a sleeping bag. When you go have your, your Devereux sleepover at Joel's house... Do you sleep in his, do you have, do you sleep in his guest bed? Yes. So I would sleep in a bed. I, I can sleep in a bed. I can sleep on the floor. That's a nice thing. So I can sleep on either surface comfortably. You can sleep anywhere. I can sleep anywhere. That's the point. Yeah. He may fall asleep here. Can sleep on the ground. Like, uh, yeah. So we, we actually have tatami mats, um, in our condo. So uh, an added advantage by the way, is that we don't have dedicated bedrooms. So my wife and I live in a smaller condo. And we're able to actually have a lot more functional space in that condo because we don't have a bedroom. So the mats roll up, throw them in a closet. You have a, a room. You could do whatever you wanted to. It could be a workout room. In this case, it's an office. Um, so the versatility with less square footage is kind of a piece of that too. Uh, and the Japanese figured that out a long time ago. So we took inspiration from them. Who had to convince who between you and your wife? 
my wife was actually the first one that did it. And as she tells the story, she saw the writing on the wall. So at the time we had already become vegan and that had been an, an abrupt shift from zero vegetables overnight to only eating vegetables. And like, when I say vegetables, I mean like a pound of spinach in a blender, hit the blend button and drink it down while, while gagging. Um, so she saw that happen and saw the wheels turning about the sleeping on the floor and thought, you know what? This is going to happen. I'm going to go ahead and just do this. And so she was the first to do it, actually. Um, and uh, and then we both started sleeping on the floor and it's been that way for, I don't know, seven years. Joel, have you ever tried it? Sleeping on the floor? When we go camping. Do you sleep well when you camp? Well, speaking on stoicism, if I, ref- if I reference my favorite stoic, Testicles, uh, his whole thing was just sleep in the bed and be comfortable. So... We can cut out testicles. That was a room. That was a joke for the room. We'll see about that. I did. I I did in um, my freshman year of high school. They were assigning names in Latin class, and I asked for testicles, and he was like, "Yeah, sure." And he wrote down the paper. He was like, "No, absolutely not." That's great. <laughs> uh, well, the natural transition from testicles over to Joel. I want to ask about your experience at Mosquito Authority. So I guess first describe what what you did there um, at Mosquito Authority, and then I have a couple couple follow ups there. Yeah, so Mosquito Authority was a franchise company, and so I franchised. Um, it was a multi unit franchise, which means it was more than one location for us. We st- started off as a single, and then acquired and grew, and we actually took over some management contracts for another owner, um, and I had a counterpart business partner in that venture as well who we, where we owned it was down at the beach he lived at the beach i lived here and so we we treated for mosquitoes people's yards he was more of our boots on the ground operator i was more of our back office all the stuff i actually don't love doing but it taught me a lot of skill sets that i otherwise probably wouldn't have had which now you can appreciate what zach does oh for sure yeah absolutely so i yeah it was it was a good experience how old were you I was 23 when I got into it, which after I exited, I did ask my dad. I just said, Hey, why did y'all let me do that? Looking back on it, that was so dumb for, to let a 23 year old, like have the keys to the, to the nice car. And he was like, honestly, it wasn't that like relatively speaking, it wasn't that much money. So we kind of knew if you failed, you'd be able to recover, you'd be okay. And if you succeeded, you were going to learn a lot that way too. And so he was, you know, the risk seemed worth it to let you go try it. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I kind of really, my question was like, why did no one try to talk me out of doing this? But everybody was very supportive. I think, I don't know. It, yeah. 23 probably shouldn't have done it, but did it. But you got to be grateful. So grateful that you did do it. Oh, for sure. So many just little things pop up now where I wouldn't have thought about it then, but I think about it now of, Oh, I've already had to deal with that situation. So now it's not, you know, I think a big part of us going out and working together is we both, we were both business operators in our twenties and there's just so much to that now where I think there could have been stressors today, but weren't because we already stressed about them 10 years ago. And it allows us to focus on the really important stuff today. Yeah, you guys are both entrepreneurs and we'll get into Zach's background at New Wave and, you know, any other 
interesting kind of things that you guys were doing in your twenties, but I'm curious for both of you and we'll start with you, Joel, what gave you the confidence or the ability to be naive enough about the fact that you could just go, Hey, I'm going to go run a business as a 23 year old, right? Basically just out of college. Like, where do you think that came from? Where does that confidence come from? I think it was a little bit of a cocktail of confidence, being naive, but also being a little bit of a contrarian, which I think has always been relatable for the both of us of not, not actually like trying to be different just to be different, but just honestly feeling a little different. And like growing up, I grew up in an environment, you know, family owned business. And, um, my, my dad worked in that for a long time and then went out into real estate and all cousins kind of, you know, I've had a lot of influence in my life of it's kind of what you do. And so that was always on my radar of, yeah, I, I think I kind of want to do my own thing. And so looking, I mean, if you kind of look at my work history where I have not thrived, have, has, it's more a more structured corporate environment where I have thrived more. It's been, Hey, the weight kind of falls on me to figure it out. And you, you know, when you're in that position, like you kind of have to go do it. But I think a big thing for me was always like, well, I want to go try. If I fail, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, that's, that's something I, I wouldn't say I think about a lot, but it's a, I think for me, it's a good assessment tool of no, truly what's the worst that could happen. And back then it was like, okay, the worst that happens is I probably move back in with my parents for some period of time. That's not that bad. Yeah. That ex- that's a, such a great exercise and can be done in any, any version of your life. Um, cause usually if you truly think about what is actually the worst case when you're in the position that you're in, I mean, we're in, uh, you know, in the United States in a, you know, affluent area and come with, you know, multiple parents and, siblings and support systems and all that. The worst case scenario is usually not as bad as what you probably make it out to be. Zach, how about you? Where, where did your confidence come in to say, Oh yeah, I can do this entrepreneur thing. Yeah. So, I mean, tying this back into the sleeping on the floor, honestly, I mean, that's, that's kind of the point that I was, you know, attempting to make. I mean, a lot of it came from a sense of, I want to try to, you know, not, this is not voluntary poverty. I'm not talking about something to that extreme like the Stoics would have would have suggested people do, um, but it was attempting to live with as little as possible, see what that was like, and then you know the bottom. And the key is knowing the bottom. It's not imagining all the possible like you know ways that that can be positive. It's knowing what that worst case is. It's knowing what that maximum negative is. And and I think so much revolves around understanding what that that worst case is, that maximum negative, and you know, that's kind of how we oriented our life. And, you know, we lived on a very, very low income. You know, we don't, we don't have kids, but you know, at the time, like, um, I mean, initially my wife was in school, like, you know, she was, was and is a teacher, um, never really making that much money. And when she graduated her, her program, that's about the time I left working, uh, you know, for someone else. And so, I think one year my income was, Joel and I laugh about this, we compare low income numbers, but I mean, definitely made less than $15,000, you know, for a year or two maybe. And she was not making much either. Well, good news is is that North Carolina teachers get paid very well. That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, your, your listeners in North Carolina, well, really anywhere for that matter, as soon as I say teacher, they know what I'm talking about. And many of them have uh, folks that are teachers. But I was smiling when Joel was answering the question uh, earlier because I know at one point um, for one of our coffee rendezvous, we discussed this. And I believe the answer Joel gave me one time was a healthy dose of narcissism. And <laughs> and I loved that answer. And it may have been someone told you that possibly. Um, I'm not really sure. But I'll kind of, I'll launch off on that a little bit, but I think it, it is a little bit of that. Honestly, it's, you know, both of us say we can do this better. Like that the way that we do this is just better than the way that someone else is doing this or someone else is telling us. And I say that kind of tongue in cheek. I'm not actually saying either of us are narcissists, but, um, but there's, there's an element of that. I think that's part of that profile. Um, and for me personally, like growing up, my parents were immensely supportive of, you know, any of the wild endeavors that I would be trying to do. And, you know, they really encouraged me to pursue the ideas. But then, you know, if, if I decided to not pursue that anymore, they weren't going to hold my feet to the fire. They were they were very encouraging on just, you know, try, fail or get tired, try again, try again. But the key is that you just keep moving. You keep exploring, you keep learning, you keep reading. Um, and that's the pathway for me. I love to read about business and finance and um, I had been kind of dreaming after I found out about this thing called a search fund, uh, you know, early in my career, I've been dreaming of doing this and trying to put that in place. Um, and, uh, you know, definitely some risk involved with that, but ultimately a lot of it boils down to seeing what other people are doing and, and saying like, I think I can do this better, or I don't need this person in order to thrive in my career. Um, you know, I need, I need this knowledge. I need a couple of good people to work with. Um, and, uh, and then we can kind of go from there. So, um, parents are always very supportive of that and, uh, you know, kind of wanting us to be successful, but also saying it's okay to fail. Um, and I think that's just a, a really important piece of that as well. But yeah. Well, and I think a piece of that too, you know, using the, using better as the terminology, I think that could be misunderstood of, you know, I don't think either of us would ever sit here and say we're, we're better than someone else. But I think the way we would look at it is just cause something's done a certain way, better can just mean different and better is going to be in our own way. And I think that's how we looked at this was, right. Hey, my exposure to what we're doing now was very different to how we do it. And we, that's really kind of what brought this together was, well, there seems like there could be a better, different way to do this. And that's how we want to do it. And I think that's a, yeah. And there's this, there's this really cool kind of relationship that people have to knowledge that, you know, I kind of started thinking about and reading about, you know, years ago that was also really enabling, uh, for me, it's simply to distill it down as no one really knows what's going on. And that's really important. And that sounds trivial, but like it's, it's foundational to like how we think and, and process things as humans. And, um, you know, when we're younger, we're often told there is a way to do this. There's a right way. There's a wrong way. And I think, I think breaking that spell was really important and realizing, and I think that comes when you work with other people and, and you're kind of finally an adult, you realize the adults don't really know what's going on. They really don't like, and, and for that matter, it's unknowable. And I think that's the key. There isn't in so many like domains that we operate in, there is no actual right way to do it. And that's to Joel's point. There are different ways of doing it. And there are 
better ways of doing it. I mean, there are people that try and, and fail. And I think the people that try and succeed are doing something in that domain that is working better, not from a moral standpoint, but from a, you know, a practical standpoint, it's just working and what the other person did isn't working. Um, but I think that was, that was a very liberating thought to realize that, you know, these, these captains of industry, these, these great people, these people that write these books, like they're all kind of guessing like, and, and the difference I think is people that guess and then try to do it. They make a guess, they test it, they have their hypothesis, they test their hypothesis. If it's successful, they do it again or modify it a little bit. If it's, if, if it fails, they do something else. They quickly change. Um, and, and I think that's really key, that empirical mindset to kind of navigating anything in life. But, but at the end of the day, you could say, it's just not really like listening to people in authority. I know that, I don't know that that is more of a stark statement, but like, because they're just, they're guessing too. And just because somebody is powerful or persuasive, it does not mean that they actually definitively know what it is that they're talking about, especially in a complex domain like life. You know, you can make some definitively true statements about math. Um, that's just how math works though. So I'm all in on that. I think that I see it in the, I've been in the corporate world for 10, 11 years now. And I see that all the time. There's these people and I've put them on pedestals too, right? C CEOs, CIOs, some of the C level, some of the VP title, whatever. And then throughout my career, I've been lucky to kind of like grow and meet those people and interact with those people. And you just realize they're just human beings like you are. They have a house, they have family, they have problems, they have issues, they don't know things. And it, it kind of strips the varnish off of, of, of that. And it is freeing to your point, Zach, like it is, it is freeing to know that sure, these people, they may, they have certain abilities or talents that they've honed over, over for their craft, but they're not the end all be all. They don't know for sure, you know, what they're talking about in every moment of every day. And so that, that is a freeing mindset. So when we talk about what you guys have, have come together to do and, and I'll kind of tee it up. I mean, full disclosure, I have invested in Zach and in Joel and what they're doing around Devereaux. So I'll give my, my view of what you guys do and then you guys can edit it. What you guys do is go and look for real estate and I'll give it a 75 mile radius from Raleigh, North Carolina and look for real estate in the multifamily area. So that's places like apartments and condos and others that um, have multiple units, multiple different people, families living in the same place to go and buy that real estate and then allow investors like myself and others to invest into that, uh, that piece of real estate. So as an example, you could go buy a, we'll use round numbers, uh, a $2 million um, multifamily in you know 50 miles outside of Raleigh, North Carolina, go get bank financing that may allow you to have 70% of that. So that's 1.4 million. So you'll need to raise $600,000 to get to the total of $2 million. But you also may realize that you need to put an additional $400,000 into the project to renovate the building or make other improvements. So now we need a million dollars of cash in order to close on this deal. So you guys could start that and maybe, you know, cobble together a million dollars between the two of you or your families or try to find other mean loans or other ways to get that money. But in order to scale, 
how do we get this money from other people, allow them to grow their wealth. And so you guys then go out and, you know, raise that million dollars, go close on that piece of real estate. And in return, these investors get a certain amount of money for their investment. They get equity, they get uh, a piece of the, of the real estate. And you guys go and manage that property to the best of your ability. And then over time, you know, exit, sell, um, and the investor gets a little bit of money. You guys get a little bit of money and you carry on and you do this time and time again, um, is, is kind of the goal. So this is the business that you guys have created, which is under the name Devereaux. How did I do? Great. So easy. Anyone can do it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You guys don't know anything. Zach just basically said it. You guys don't know anything. Exactly. I've introduced the skeptical argument. <laughs> the lion's in the room. <laughs> it's devouring everybody. <laughs> if we don't mind, I want to back into the, yes. the, the partnership aspect. So you guys are off doing your own thing. You guys may know each other in some capacity. What prompted you guys to say, hey, the two of us could make a good team. And like we see eye to eye on like growth strategy. And that's another area that I want to get into. But like tell me a little bit about that that bringing together. Cause I actually don't know that origin story. So I did, after I left square one bank, I did a private debt fund, uh, that we raised a little bit of capital for and did, um, asset backed lending to some small businesses, um, in see Alabama and North Carolina, kind of an odd mix. Um, and, uh, all the while we were looking for a company to acquire, found a company, uh, through a friend, uh, got to the final piece of the acquisition, right about to close. Guy got cold feet, walked out, left us with a huge legal bill. And um, that was really fun. But that ultimately led to uh, starting a security company and, you know, from the ground up with a couple of folks. And we grew that, added some employees. And the idea was to create a foothold in the market and we could then potentially identify an acquisition target. So, uh, so Joel uh, leased us our office space over on Trawick Road. And so we occupied a little office space for several years and Joel was right next door, separated by a wall. And at some point I was sitting out in on a desk that was just overlooking the, the parking lot with, and, uh, and Joel comes walking by and uh, pops into the office and sits down and starts talking. And ever since then, we've been friends and we have regular sit downs and talks and this persisted for several years through an acquisition and we moved and we became closer friends and uh and then when we were looking to um exit the uh company we had acquired new wave um that's when joel had been putting more pressure on this real estate idea and he had been he'd been kind of talking about it for several years and uh and he eventually he eventually convinced me he helped me see how it was uh almost the same type of investment as what I was, uh, targeting and what I loved. And, uh, and that was a, a key moment. So about sums it up. Love it. First sight. I don't know about that. You know, <laughs> he, was, he have long hair back then too. He's married to one of my, uh, closest friends from college too. So there's always a lot of odd overlap in our lives. Our, our parents, our dads knew each other really well had been investors in various deals and, and we never, we missed each other in various schools by like one year. It was weird. Yeah. I was like, Zach was always chasing me. Like I was at this one school, he decided to show up. I left. And then we were at this church. They showed up. We left. It's like, he's, he's just been a hot on my tail, you know, for, for you know decades at this point. But 
No, yeah, him and him and Jordan were on the water ski team at Wake together. How about that? Yeah. And so when she moved to Raleigh, me and her started dating. We went to dinner once or twice, and that was like enough of the relationships so that when they were looking for office space, knowing having met Zach and then actually knowing his dad decently well, you know, they kind of tapped me. We were like, hey, we're looking for space. And I was like, great. Actually, the office next door to ours is going to be available. Y'all should just rent that. And it just, it worked out. And so, yeah, I started popping in, talking to him, talked about coffee a lot, which then turned into just going to get coffee weekly. And Joel, Joel made me obsessed with coffee. There's no telling how much that habit, how much I've spent on that habit since that fateful day with the AeroPress. I remember what it was. Yeah, it was the AeroPress. It's like, have you ever tried making coffee like third wave gourmet coffee, like, you know, pour overs and stuff. It's like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Brought his AeroPress over, pressed a little coffee. I was like, oh my God. Well, it's yeah. funny because looking back on it, like I had no idea what I was doing or talking about. And <laughs> Zach... Well, de- Zach's already set that standard yeah, that well, we, no I'm, one knows. I, like, I'm not like a rabbit hole guy. I'm more of just like a dabbler. And once I get to the level of like my comfort of, oh, I enjoy this, that's, I, I stop diving into it. It's like... I'm a rabbit hole guy. Yeah. 100%. And so within like two weeks he was just like running circles around me and I was just like, coffee's good. And, and yeah, and it was funny. This but, brown liquid in yeah. my glass is pretty good. <laughs> it beats the Keurig, right? But yeah, so me, I would pop in and talk with Zach and it just turned into these really good conversations about life and about work and kind of what we wanted out of both, which could be different, but a lot of similarities. And to be honest, pretty early on, I was just like, you know what? I like Zach. I trust Zach. I like how he thinks and looks at things. And I, I appreciate that it's a very different, it's a very different process and a very different approach and skill set from mine. It's just, it was almost like all the things I feel like I am not the greatest at. Zach was very good. And, but there was a total like relatable level on a lot of other things and so I remember early on just being like, you know what? We're going to work together. I don't know what it is. And I told him that. I was like, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it's going to be. But, like, I am grabbing on and I'm not letting go. Good luck getting rid of me. You know, it Especially could be, with my 10-foot arms. Yeah, exactly. I, right. I, dude, I have you in the biggest hold. Yeah, because, I mean, you were – I mean, we were talking about that stuff, I mean, s- several years before uh, at least anything five. ever happened. So yeah. he's been wooing you for He's a been decade. wooing. Full court press. Oh, yeah. yeah. In my mind, it could have been – a two year thing. It could have been 10 years. I just, I knew at some point this makes too much sense to me to not partner up. Well, and, and the exact same thing is true on my side. So like the things that I struggled with, and it's funny, you asked at the beginning about the the fundraising piece, that is absolutely my Achilles heel, like a hundred percent. And that is what, that is what prompted notable failures in the past with the debt fund. We, we could only keep that a certain size essentially because like the fundraising piece and I was the guy. And, and then when Joel and I started talking about this stuff seriously, and I saw that like, that was a skill set he possessed and he was really good at that. And like having coffee with folks taking calls like all the time, like that's just, I mean, you know him. So, you know, this is a, a, a piece of his, his skill set and his personality. Like, I think that was definitely a clicking moment too. And it's like, Oh, Hey, like I really like the technical stuff. I, lo- I love that. Like that's where I'm comfortable. And Joel doesn't like that quite as much. And like, you know, but is really, really good on the fundraising and, you know, being super personable and relating to these folks in, in meaningful ways. And like, you know, that's just, that's a great, 
combination. And I think that became evident to both of us uh, at some point a long time before we ended up actually formally doing something. Yeah, I think that's really neat to hear because you know I've got my own business partners, Joel actually being one of them, and in, in other ventures in, in much smaller uh, doses than what you guys do. But um, it's always interesting to hear that origin story because I think there's so many common themes with this. I mean, you talk about the crossover in um, uh, complementing in hard skills, right, on the sales side or the technical side, the soft skills and being able to work together. But I think almost more importantly, and it almost got glossed over what Joel said, was you guys spent many times over a cup of coffee, over that brown liquid, talking about life. Oh, yeah. And what, like, kind of your why and what is the purpose? Why are most of our conversations now? I mean, and and tying into that, I think it's so important. Like, one of my business partners, Ryan Armstrong, who was on the podcast a long time ago, you know, if we didn't have a matched up why, why are we doing this? Right? Like, is it to just make the most money possible? Is it to, um, you know, go impact others' lives? Is it to just kind of do it on the side and just see what happens? Like, what is the reason why we are doing this? And I think if those are if those are mismatched, it's just not going to work long term, right? Are you thinking short term? Are you thinking long term? And so the fact that you guys like delved into one another's why, you delved into like your each other's life, and kind of realized, hey, we kind of like sync. Like you just meet those people in your life, and you just kind of sync up. And that's probably why you got that attachment. Like, oh man, like not only does he have the complementary skills to me, but like we match really well in why we want to go do something together. Yeah. Well, I think a big piece of that too, which like we haven't touched on at all is I know that we both enjoy and appreciate the business world, but I think the found like a big foundation for both of us is our faith. And that just comes into play so much too. But like for me, I remember in college, you know, being a volunteer leader in ministry for many years there was always this tug of, well, I feel like I should go into ministry, but like, I really like the business world. And so there was, it was always this kind of like, what should I do? Should I go to ministry? Should I go to the business world? You know, am I, does me going to the business world mean I'm doing what I want to do and being selfish or, you know, it, but I think ultimately what it led to was we both, that's so important for both of us. And I think that was a piece where we really clicked was, Oh, we can, have faith be a huge foundation of our lives and of our business, but we don't have to be a nonprofit. We don't have to be a ministry because there's a lot that we can do. There's a lot of good we can do. There's a lot of ways we can serve people. There's a lot of ways we can influence people with just how we operate every day and how we interact with people every day. And now like a big piece of that is like how we interact with our property managers, our vendors, the residents at our properties, whether they realize it or not, they might not. And there's definitely folks out there that like, probably think that we're the worst and like not worth a dime. But truthfully, like at the end of the day, like that's a big piece of how we think through this is before we started, that was a a, a very large part of the conversation was how can we use our faith as a baseline in work without like absolutely cramming it down someone's throat and without having to, you know, call ourselves a ministry, you know, and really someone else coined this or put it this way to me one time was we wanted to be, uh, we didn't, we didn't want to necessarily call ourselves a faith-based organization, but we just want to be faith forward in how we think and operate. And I think that's just within the fabric of how we've tried to build our business, which a lot of that just comes down to like how we, how we treat and interact with other people. But that was definitely a, a big part of it. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and it's funny because I think in a past life, Joel and I probably would have had pretty strong differences in kind of how we approached that world. Um, and you know, a lot of the stuff that kind of happened personally in my life, like over those intervening years between high school, um, you know, and five, six years ago, like really shaped me to be more receptive to that way of thinking about it, where it's, it's not in your face. It's more personal. It's more something that, you know, whether you're Christian or you're, you know, Buddhist or Islamic, whatever, um, you'll probably look at what we're doing and say like, oh yeah, that, that's good. Like what you're doing is, is, and I know not like, again, it's not a nonprofit. So like, it's not, we're not handing out meals or doing anything like that, but, but you're not gouging rents. So like you're not throwing those things as high as you can with doing the least amount of work. Like we're trying to create a middle housing tier so that folks that do have ordinary jobs where they're not making tons and tons of money, like still have places to live. And that's a dire need in this country. I mean, you can't open a news publication and not see something about that. Um, and so I, I think that it's, it's good. It's faith adjacent. It's faith forward, whatever the terminology is. But, but yeah, I definitely think that that was something, you know, and Joel's been kind of operating that way for a long time. And, you know, that's something that was impactful to me that, you know, kind of part of that relationship. Um, yeah. Which, which is, which is a really great thing and a really cool thing about what we do too, that we can actually do that. From an investor perspective, I see that come through. I see that you guys are, are trying to, to, find that middle ground of how do we do right for the tenants? How do we do right for the investors? How do we do right for ourselves? And like balancing that is a really tough ask in an environment, in a country that is all about more, 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 more and finding that ability to, to find deals and to find people in your life and surround yourself with people that are, that are good with good and doing good. I think that's, that's really powerful. So as you guys, you guys have built this foundation over a long period of time, through this origin story, you're now out looking for deals. As you guys think we, we've touched on growth, we've touched on, you know, how you grow yourself, how you grow a business. As you guys thought about your growth strategy, how would you define what that is? And like, and even the origin of that and how that came about and how you guys determined, yes, this is, this is what we're going to do. And this is how we want to grow. Yeah. I think the initial, I'm going to give you the really dumb, basic version now let zach well and think about it like the most of the listeners aren't in real estate they don't know i mean i purposely expanded on multifamily right there's there's we're in this world we all know it the three of us know this world but most people don't yeah so i think the initial idea was start small work our way up as far as deal size because there was going to be there's a lot associated with that it's the Honestly, the equity raise was the biggest piece was knowing, Hey, we've got a, we, even though we feel like we have good backgrounds, we are still young. We could still be perceived as inexperienced. And, you know, technically you could look at this was a new venture for us. You know, yes, I had a lot, you know, real estate brokerage, in my background, we had a lot of business management and operations in our background, but this was still new. And so the idea was we, we need to go start small, build a name for ourselves, build a reputation. And that also came as a piece of advice. We have a few advisors that we meet with quarterly. And that was a big piece of advice from one of those advisors was, Hey, there are going to be people that want 
to work with you and want to invest with you and want to see you do well. But you're going to, you know, some folks are just going to jump on to jump on and be supportive. Some people are going to want to see a little bit of, you know, proof in the pudding before they commit. And so that was a thought was we'll start small and we'll kind of grow into what we think is our ideal size. And that really comes down to what, what we think is ideal and that's deal size, but that's also quality of life. And I think that's a big, a really big part of it. Cause at one point, you know, I'm brokering full time while also have mosquito authority going at the same time. And fortunately, you know, I had a business partner in that that was very good at what he did. And so that took a lot of stress off, off of me. Uh, but it was still, it was a lot. You were starting a family too. Yeah, that's right. And so just had this great idea of like, why not just throw, you know, more into the mix, got plenty of time, you know, but a, a big piece for us was this is something that we can do and have a lot of control over our time and do it in a very sustainable way where we don't have to go spend 80 hours a week for the first three years to, to make an income and to build something sustainable. The idea was, you know, we can do this and as long as we're willing to commit to, Hey, the first few years are going to feel tight. You know, it's not going to be the just gangbuster years, but at the end of the day, if we stick to our plan for the next 10, 15, 20, whatever it is, right. It, 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 I think having that long-term thinking is very, has been very important for both of us is how we both look at this stuff. And it's kind of how, it's how we look at everything. It's not the, it's not the satisfaction now or how much, you know, how much can I crush it now? You know, it's how do I do something for the next 20 years that allows me to be there with my family a lot, provide what I need now and, is going to probably pay off a little bit more down the road. And I'm not trying to go off on a tangent, but for me, honestly, I think a big piece is if you look at kind of the bar I set for life of how I'm willing to live, I've actually drastically brought that down from what I'd originally thought after having kids. But you're not sleeping on the floor. But I'm not sleeping on the floor, no. Well, and, and I'll add too, I mean, I think, you know, for the purpose of this podcast too, I think it's important, like, hey, how can we – how can we translate? You know, I'm, I'm big on taking experience and making it actionable because I think that experience that isn't actionable is worthless. And it's essentially just, it's what you've lived your life. Okay, cool. I mean, anyone that's alive is living a life. Like if I can't do something with it, what's the point? And I think to distill out, you know, our incremental growth strategy, which is what Joel's describing and make this actionable a lot of people have ideas and let's say that they want to do this sort of thing, but the idea looks something like this. You know, I want to go and buy uh, $20 million worth of uh, properties and they're coming from just a normal W2 job. Like maybe they have great experience or contacts. That's big. Like, and maybe for certain people, that's not a big deal, but you know, for a, a younger person, let's say in their mid twenties, that's going to be a, a big hurdle. Um, and, and people will get over that and they'll be successful doing that. But most people who have that idea won't because they've set a goal. And the first step to that, like 20 million is the first step. And so what Joel's just described and what we believe in is kind of the opposite approach. So yeah, I mean, at some point in the next five, 10, 15 years, like I hope we have many millions of dollars, you know, worth of assets and, and capital under management. But the point is like, we started with a target that we knew we could do. 
And we went after a price point that we felt pretty confident. I mean, there was risk obviously involved with this, but we felt, we felt pretty confident that we could get that money and we could successfully manage that property. Uh, you know, both the acquisition of it, the interim management and the, the slight value add, and then ultimately the exit. And we did it. We took that step. And then once you've taken that step, everything changes. But if your goal is 20 or scale it to your, your ability, maybe it's 50 or hundred, I don't know. If that's where you start, you'll never start. Like if, if that's your bar for getting started, you'll, you'll probably just never take that first step. Well, it's like, it's like losing weight. It's like, Hey, I want to lose 150 pounds. Exactly right. And you think, well, wait a second, 150 pounds. Like I can't do that. Like how would I even get there? And then you just quit. Whereas like, yeah, I'm going to lose 150 pounds, but I'm going to lose a pound a week or a pound every two weeks or whatever. Or, you know, or my approach to that was not really even hardly caring about that, but actually just taking care of diet and trying to exercise more, you know, get in the pool, go for longer walks. Like, you know, if you eat a certain way, you'll, you'll lose weight period just because of how it works. But, um, but yeah, the point is like, take that step and, and set the goal, but mainly have something that is that it is very small that when you add all those things up, you integrate that, you get to this really nice hole. Um, that was a math illusion, by the way, for my wife who may be listening to this at some point. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. Like you got to make it tactical, got to make it actionable, yes. no doubt, no matter what you're trying to do. And you guys have done that. And then you can grow from there. Um, you can scale from there. I think I, I, very curious to dive into a little bit of what Joel was talking about. And I know that Zach, you care about a lot too, is how do you go and start a business knowing that you're not trying to blow it out of the water right away and take all these crazy risks and still basically still have a life, still be able to raise your kids or do the hobbies that you want to do or be whatever you want to do. So that I think that's a really fine line because I think a lot of people will start to feel this huge pressure on themselves to say, Oh, I don't have a W2 anymore or I don't, you know, I only have X amount saved. So <laughs> I wrote a question down that I'm curious now how you guys would answer it. What tactical things did you guys do to make sure that you and your family weren't going to go homeless? Yeah, that one's really simple. Like just have the difference between your monthly expenses and your income be vast and and, and that's controllable, right? So like your expenses are totally controllable. Like you can't, you can't predict whether you're going to be employed the next day, like, but you can largely control how much you, you spend. So, you know, I, I think exerting that control and widening that gap, that's what we did strategically and but tactically. And, and tactically you had to do that prior to make, to, to actually going oh, in absolutely. on this. This yeah. is not a flip of the switch. So that was, that was going to be one of my big comments was, I wouldn't, I was going to say we had the luxury, it wasn't really a luxury. We both had the background of, I wasn't, it's not like I was walking away from a salary and benefits and a full comp package. I was a 1099 contractor and self-employed. And so it was more of just kind of a shift where, you know, I, I haven't had a W2 since 2013 you were probably right around the same time. Yeah, and I left uh, the job, the place I left, I, I really I loved working there. Um, and I told them, and it was, it was truthful, that the only reason I'm leaving is because I'm going to do something on my own. Like, if that wasn't true, I'd still be here. Um, 
but yeah, a little bit different. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, I was, I don't know, 24 at the time. So like I wasn't making that much money, but I mean, it was leaving a, a, a paycheck. Um, at, at the time my wife was newly, yeah. Yeah. She was employed at that point. Um, she wasn't still a student. So, um, but, and, and I think it's also clear to one of the things I really hate when I watch like the, any of those fire starter videos and stuff like that is understanding where the person came from initially. I think that's a key piece too. Like I had several scholarships in college. I did not have student debt. I did not go to a, uh, I don't have a master's degree. I didn't go to an MBA program or law school or anything like that. Um, so our expense level coming out of college and into marriage, and I was married a year after I graduated from college. So I had, small, but still double incomes. Um, and I think that's an enabling factor. And I think you can replicate those conditions in other ways, like, you know, someone that earns a lot of money, uh, and saves a lot of that money. Um, but we happen to have a combination of like, again, two incomes, but not a lot, but very, very low overhead too. Um, and, and that was intentional. I mean, I'm in the process of maybe going back to school at some point, I'm taking classes, but you know, maybe try to do a doctorate degree or something like that, that is funded. I'm not going to have to pay for that, um, ultimately. And so, you know, being smart about how you do education and, and, and that world is also a factor here. Um, but yeah, did not have student loans, which is worth, you know, kind of saying so. Yeah. And same. And I think that's, I think looking at that big picture, it's like when we started, I mean, you hit the nail on the head of making sure, I mean, really it's just, even if it's a loose budget of, so for me, it was just created, it was a long enough runway. And that was a big conversation between me and my wife was, Hey, here's the runway I'm going to, we have that I can, I can do. And if this fails, I can pull the plug at this point in time, but I just want to go at least this far to try. And I will know at that point, if it's working or not working, if it's working, we keep on. If it's not working, pull the plug. I'll go work a corporate job the rest of my life if I need to, but like, we want to go try this. And so I think a big piece is just making sure you have the ducks and your ducks in a row to go do it. And then part of it too, is just it, you know, kind of going back to your question of how do you manage that of, you know, I'm working, but I want to be with my family. I think for me, and I'm sure there are a lot of people out here that feel the same way, but for me, you know, our first daughter was born right at the beginning of COVID. And so I went from having no kids and not COVID life to one kid at home, full COVID world. And, you know, perspectives can shift and things can change. And for me, it was, I, I got to go do this. And there's a, a really, uh, I've got some really important reasons for this to be successful. But at the end of the day, spending time with my family can be oftentimes way more important than work. And it's like work is, I can always return that call. I can always return that email. I don't always get to take my daughter to the park. And so I want to make sure I do everything I can to make sure I can do that and go enjoy it. No, around there, there are plenty of times where I fail and I don't do that. And I don't have that thought process, but I think that was a, that's just to me, it's in that moment. It's like, I've done the work all the time thing. And for me, it was like, yeah, I'm, Okay. If we, if I miss something because I'm with her or I'm doing something fun with my wife, then so be it. It wasn't meant to be. I think a part of that too is trusting and kind of going back to what we're talking about, like being rooted in our faith and like having that trust of knowing, you know what, I'm going to show up and while I'm working, I'm going to do my best and I'm going to work my hardest and which can sound cheesy, but honestly, I, 
I look at when we got into this, when I would look around the room at people who I would deem successful, it was never the guy that would live by the mantra of you just got to work hard all the time. It was always the guy that unintentionally was working smarter, not harder. And essentially what it was, was they had their processes. They had their systems. They were consistent, which I think is a huge piece to it. It's not just showing up. Anyone can show up, but it's showing up consistently and doing the appropriate work while you're there. And I think that's what I've really tried to anchor to. And I think that's where having a good partnership has really come into play. I would probably be more stressed if I was having to perform some of the job duties that Zach performs, but because I'm not having to, I know I can show up and say, okay, here's what I need to get done today. And if I finish that at three o'clock, I personally am not going to put pressure on myself to go do two more hours just to do two more hours. If I finish it at three and I have the chance to take one of my kids or do, go do something like that, go to the pool this summer. Yeah. We're just going to go to the pool because I've achieved what I set out to achieve that day. And I feel very okay with that. Yeah. And this is kind of back to this and we've circled around this and you know, Joel's points are very well made. I think we're very much on the same page in that regard. Um, we spend our time differently, but like it's the same concept. Um, it's the idea of limits. And I think that, I think, and Joel just alluded to this, that the American culture has, and there've been some interesting uh, research publications um, that have appeared recently up to this effect that the like top one, the 0.001% work more hours than everybody else too. And it's like, that doesn't make sense in the context of human history. For most of time, the point of working was so that you could accumulate wealth and not work. Yeah, that's the point. Leisure, like, leisure used to be a sign of wealth. Yeah, and, and, and it's now not, now busyness is a sign exactly of wealth. because it's this idea of my time is in demand. Someone wants my time, you know. And I don't think Joel or myself have that idea at all. For the most part, I certainly don't. Like, I mean, the whole point of working and earning money, in my mind is that I actually have time to do the stuff that isn't that. And to some extent, to a large extent, I actually love what we do. So like, that's something I would spend time doing anyways. Like, I just like that, which is a different conversation. But um, but the idea of limits is really important too. And, and Joel has just said that without using that term maybe. But it's this idea that when we get to a certain point, you stop. And, and the same can be said financially. Like, and that's what keeps people in jobs they hate too. It's this idea of more. They want more money, more money, more promotions. It's like, see, as soon as you set limits, you're free. Because once the limit hits, you're gone. Like, or you divest the asset. And so back to our investment strategy, processes and limits go hand in hand. You know, different sides of the same coin. So for us, we have targets and numbers for these assets. We will divest them when they hit that point. Like, we are not going to hold something just to see how far it's going to go. And the same can be said on the downside. And, and I think that's discipline. Like discipline is knowing those limits and actually working around those. And I think the same thing personally for folks that if they set limits for themselves and when they exceed that, they stop whatever that stopping point is and whatever that limit is like, you will be happier. It's when you have an unlimited idea, which is, is infinite. Our brains can't handle that. Like we don't know what to do with infinity. And if it's an infinite amount of money, if you could always have to have more, I can guarantee you, you will be unhappy that way. But like, if you say, Hey, you know what? I've got X amount of my savings account. Like that's good. I've got six months of runway to go and try to start this thing. Like do it. 
And if at the end of six months, that runway is gone and you haven't been successful, go back to work. Rebuild it. Yeah, Try go, it again. Yeah, going back to worst case scenario. What's the worst case exactly. scenario? You just, yeah, you go get a job. You, yeah. go, you go do what you've already done before. Yeah, don't fret yeah. that you, you leaving is going to result in you not earning this, you know, this huge six-figure salary and then having some sort of incremental adjustment on that and then playing that forward, uh, you know, for the rest of your life and calculating your lost income. It's like, that's a recipe for unhappiness. Like, um, but anyways, the, the, the idea there is that these, these limiting factors are so important to any process. And, and I think personal happiness, uh, and I think there's some, some good, good and interesting research that, that backs that too. That's come out recently. So, yep. I've, I think we could have a whole hour conversation around the, you know, aspect of enough and setting those limits and uh, having the discipline to adhere to the limits that you have set in a prior point in your life. The, I'm curious from a, from a number, you guys don't have to give specific numbers, but going back to the conversation around like making sure you guys limited those uh, you knew your, your income could be X amount at the beginning and you knew your expenses had to be less than that. Any other rules of thumb around that? for people or around, Hey, have X, X number of months of, of expenses, like just save, like don't like have it liquid, whatever, like any other rules of thumb that come to mind? Yeah, we'll, we'll probably, and we probably have different approaches to, to budgeting and answering that. So we'll, we'll both take a crack at that. But I mean, for me, I don't, I don't necessarily have any hard and fast rules. I just, you know, I always, I always hear my uncle's voice in my head. Uh, he was a dentist for about 30 years and he would always tell me, um, we both love business. We love talking about it. He's, he ran his own practice for 30 years and, uh, he would always tell me every year he'd be like, nephew, <laughs> sometimes he would say that nephew, uh, the key with any business is managing overhead. And so many of my peers do not realize that. And you look around. And he would always talk about this. He's like, look, they have fancy offices. They have the latest technology. They have multiple offices. That's overhead. And so when overhead starts bearing down on you in a, in a medical context, that can be problematic because you might be overdiagnosed. You might have a root canal you don't need or fillings you don't need or something like that. That's more of a cynical approach. But let's just look at the overhead. And he said, there's a man that had a paper filing system for the entirety of his practice. And he retired, gosh, I think it's been six, seven years ago. So well into the digital era. Um, he was like, I have almost no overhead. So the money I bring home is so much more than everyone else around me, but my revenue is so much less. And that really landed with me. And, and having that point just repetitively said over and over throughout my life, like I just, I, I always think about overhead and I'm not as cognizant of the top line and I think for personal budgeting, it's the exact same idea. Like, I just don't really focus on the money coming in. I know, I know that sounds weird. You have to. I mean, I'm, it's a little bit of an exaggeration here. But, like, I'm laser focused on what overhead I have and how flexible it is. Is this overhead I can remove quickly and, and not be really affected by it? And so I have different tiers. So that that's probably about as specific as I would get from a budgeting rule. I don't have a... 30% of your income or six months of runway. Um, it just depends on lifestyle and it depends on your own comfort level. Some people are okay with almost no runway. In fact, that motivates them, you know, high risk seeking types. Like they need that that's fuel for them. Um, they need to feel that danger. Um, 
other folks want a, a long amount of runway and some of that's dictated by family. So, you know, I, I I'm a two person household, so I can get away with a lot uh, less uh, before I get to a critical red zone. For me coming from real estate brokerage, I already, my mindset already had to be a lot different and I didn't look at, you know, I didn't have a paycheck every two weeks. And so the way I look at our overall budget is actually based on the year. And so if I have income that I make today, I'm not looking at how do I budget it next week or next month. It's being budgeted for a year from today. And so creating that runway was already something I was having to work on. But yeah, I think a piece for me is you just have to figure out what you're comfortable with and where you're okay, what lines you're okay drawing in the sand. And for me, it's always been, I'm going to draw a firmer line in the sand for myself than the expectations that I would have for like my family, my wife and my kids. And part of that being, you know what? I'm okay. I'm okay driving an older car. If it means that my wife can now go to target and get one, what we need and maybe some things we want while she's there. Right. Or just not feel the pressure of the swipe of the card. And so correct. Should I even be going to target? Right. And I think a big part of that is my family has been very supportive in so many different ways. And my wife has put up with me for years now of, let me just go try. Let me go try. There's been a lot of trying, you know, and fortunately she's very supportive of that. And I, you know, whether it's picked up on or not, I think she knows, but I, those are, it's important for me to say, you know what, just cause we're take, we're going a more non-traditional route doesn't mean we can't try to, you know, live quote unquote, a normal life. And, but I think a lot of that really comes down to standard of living and what your expectations are. And I think a very, something that we commonly say to each other is just cause you could doesn't mean you should. And I think that's how we really try to evaluate things now. And I, I, I truly think kind of my work experience over the years has affected that in a, in a very positive way. I think had I stayed with a more normal, you know, W2 corporate job where there's a check every two weeks, we probably would look at life a little bit different, but because there was a little bit more of like, I don't want to say scraping. Cause I, in a very similar situation, like my college was paid for. I didn't have student loans. I've tried to live life very debt free, but that was also a decision that I made in my twenties of, Oh, I just don't want to live life with a bunch of debt. And so there are decisions around that, but I think it has very, it's definitely aligned me and my wife, even though there'll be things we don't agree on, or, you know, I want to splurge on this, or she wants to splurge on that. We're very aligned. And I think it's definitely for the better of how we look at life now of, okay, when the last car that I drove, I sold and instead of getting a newer car, I actually got an older car. Now, part of that was me. I liked the car. It fit within my parameters, but it also for me wasn't a big deal. You know, it's easy for me to use that as my example because I don't really care as much about cars. Now, there are people that care a lot about cars and want a new car. That's great. Then figure out how to make it so you can drive the car you need. But what's that other thing that you can maybe make a little bit of a sacrifice on to go do this? So I want to close out with a couple things. So one, I want to get into a little bit of like the asking of investment, right? Of, of others. I think that that's a really interesting thing that you guys do. And then I have a couple kind of like not as serious questions just to get, just to pontificate on for a minute. And then we can close out if you guys are cool with that. 
want to talk about the art of asking for money. We talked about how you guys go and find deals. Well, in order to end up buying those deals and putting them under the Devereux name, you have to have money and that money has to come from others. What have you learned about asking others for money? I'd say for me, majority of folks are investing in you and not the deal. And I think that's really important to remember. I can speak from personal experience that that is absolutely the case. Yeah. I was investing in Joel yeah. and what I knew of Zach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the but, but now that you've met him in person, you're just, you're done. Yeah. How Sorry. do I pull my investment? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you're built, you got to build trust now for, you have a lot of trust in people. You've obviously tapped your network of people, you know, for a long time. How about the experience of those that are maybe friends of friends or, you know, part of your, or you're part of your extended network that you don't really know you, you personally don't have that trust. They have the trust in the person maybe that referred you. How, how do you go about building that trust enough for them to sign over $75,000, a hundred thousand dollars and entrust you with their hard earned cash? Yeah. I think there are a few pieces of that now, you know, getting started, Existing relationships were, are clearly really important. Even now, you know, still really important and a big piece of how we grow and plan to grow more. It sounds really simple, but I think a lot of it is if you try to BS someone, they're going to sniff you out so fast. And there's no reason to because what we're doing, we genuinely believe in. And it's easy for me to make the ask if it's something that I would or am going to put funds in myself. Right. It comes across authentically too. Right. And so it's, we believe in what we're doing. We also, you know, with what we're doing, it's not just about how much, how much real estate can we gobble up? How many doors can we acquire in the next five years? It genuinely is just, we like what we do. We see the value in it. We see the value in the workforce housing market. And so I think kind of going back to a why, you know, the why is always so important. And I think that why really comes across really well to a lot of folks that invest with us. It's, you know, they see what we're doing and it, it makes sense. And it's not just, Oh, I'm going to give Joel and Zach some money. It's I'm going to give them some money. And on the back end, there's actually going to be some good attached to it as well. And that's at least what our intent, that's what we really try to do. And so I think those pieces, and we're getting to the point now where as we grow that network, as personal as I want it to be, you know, you get to a size where it's, there's only so much relationship management you can do. And even though I love doing it, it's just, it, did, it does take a lot of time. And so it does get to a point where data says a lot. And so we can point towards here, here's what we, here's what our expectations were. Here's what we have achieved. Here's how thing, here's how a property is performing now there's a lot more that we can show than when you're first starting, we don't have one deal under our belt. Yeah. And you reach a new demographic of, of investor that like you mentioned earlier in the pod that, Hey, I'm that's all sounds great. But until you guys have a track record, you know, call me when you have a track record basically. And now you have that track record. Mm -hmm. And I'd say my biggest piece of feedback that I remember like specifically telling Zach, this was it's, it was almost surprising how much more interested people got just because we did it. I mean, it truly, because I'll say like, go, Hey, if you want to do something, go try, go swing the bat. You know, like we talked about before, you know, what's the worst that could happen. And I think people see like, Oh, they're, 
they're not just talking about doing this. They're actively doing it. That really speaks volumes to people of, oh, they're executing. It's not just a plan. And they're- we're risking a lot of personal money too. Correct. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a component of this too. It's nice to, and reputation. it's because some investors, that's the only question they ask. Like how much money do you yeah, have? Y'all got skin in the game or are you and just taking a fee? They're just, they're fine. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, all the numbers, all this makes sense, but how much do you have in this? You know? And, uh, you know, and we put, you know, a pretty considerable amount of our own net worths in those deals. I got a couple of just, outsider questions um do we not want to talk about the jamie metric at all i mean come on right he's your brother ah he's not worthy (laughs) the jamie metric is on all of our investment packages thanks to jamie davis he would always ask the same question when we were floating these deals by him he'd say look all this is good it's 30 pages great i just want to know one thing if i put a dollar in how much am i going to get out and so we added that to our investment analysis because it's great. You know, it's a little chart down at the bottom and it says for every dollar you invest, you'll get a dollar 80 cents out, you know, or something. It's like, that's great. You know, I like that. But simplification is key and every investor's got something they're looking at. Is everyone going to read through that whole thing and, and take notes? No, we have some people to do. We get questions immediately, like great questions, like Lots of questions, you know, and it makes me happy when I see that because I'm like, hey, cool. We spent a lot of time on this. This is someone that, that is concerned about it. We have other folks that they are perfectly fine with the Jamie metric or the Zach and Joel metric. Yeah, how much money? We always draw attention to that. We want people to know that we're putting money into it. Um, you know, and I, yeah, that's an important piece of that, I, I think. I don't know how often that comes up in Joel's fundraising um, conversations, but... I've always thought that was important at least. Yeah, it comes up. I'd say the most, clearly every investor has what's most important to them, right? right? And it's interesting how as you meet with people, um, you start to learn, you really start to learn and see kind of where, you know, what what is important to people. And yeah, some folks it's, if I put a dollar in, how much do I get out? Some people it's, how much are you, how much are you putting in? Like, are you in on this deal? And you get, you also get some really funny questions. And then others are asking about the realism of our rent growth projections. And have we quoted the work? Or are we just estimating for like the, the light value add stuff? And, um, you know, it's, it's good. It, you know, we try to cover enough for, for everybody so that we've, we've got the folks that, that have all those questions and hopefully we can provide those answers for them. And, but yeah. you get a glimpse of how a lot of different people in a lot of different economic conditions think about money you're getting a oh, view yeah. of like people or and maybe maybe even not in a lot of economic conditions yeah i wouldn't say it's probably a lot of economic conditions but it's a lot of different investment styles and you've got folks that are fairly new to this style of investing and they may have a lot of questions and you have folks that do this stuff all the time and that's driving a lot of questions and then you've got people that do it all the time and have no questions because they've invested in 50 of these things or 100 of these things or however many and it's like no, man, I know exactly what I'm looking for. And if it's got these three things, you know, I'm diversified enough. Even if it goes south, I'm not going to care that much. Um, it's fascinating, though, the different, the way that different minds work and process this data. And, and I, don't think, I don't know if Joel said this, but my role in that process is fairly minimal. Joel does 98, 99% of it. Uh, I'm the person that, they, that Joel will call in if there's a, a much 
there's more technical information if they're asking a lot of very specific technical questions about the financing and uh, you know some of the financial metrics that we're using and how we're kind of approaching the overall investment. You know, that's that's I'm like the I'm the follow up guy. Yeah, Joel couldn't tell us how a loan worked or what interest was. Zach, could you help us out? What's a loan? Are you you mean interest? Are you interested in this deal? <laughs> Then great. <laughs> you couldn't tell us how loan worked. Joel, this isn't a good review of your performance. I haven't been I in a lot of these meetings. <laughs> I've been told that you can handle all of this. <laughs> I'm just the real estate guy. <laughs> cool to hear uh, more of the origin story and like where you guys, where your mindset is. I've seen a lot of this come through the work and the emails and the investor charts and everything, but it's cool to dive in a little bit. So I appreciate the, the ability to do that. Um, just a couple quick hitters here before we end. And if you need some time to think about this, that's okay. But what purchase of $100 or less just in your life has most most impacted your life in the last six months, 12 months? Ooh, for me, books. There's nothing else that gives you a bang for the buck like books. Uh, I mean, anything by Hume, Dostoevsky, Camus. Uh, what book are you most likely to give as a gift to someone? Oh gosh. Uh, the most harmless book I'd say on my list. So the one I would probably give as a generic gift is Master and Margarita. It was written by a, a Soviet dissident, um, back in 19, the 1950s. Uh, it defined the genre of magical realism and it is a deeply satirical uh, book on Soviet life. Uh, so for, for an American that is just, long at, you know, decades away from being born, uh, very removed from the Soviet Union, but it gives you a glimpse at that life. Um, and the author died young, you know, he was persecuted quite extensively in, in, in Russia, but, uh, or the USSR. But, uh, anyways, that's probably the book I would give as a gift. Um, the other books are more philosophically dense, so I'd probably hold those back for a particular person. Some of them could, prompt a existential crisis for the wrong person. So definitely don't want to be throwing those in people's faces. Uh, you got a person's got to be ready for it, but yes, I think all of my top 10 books probably could be purchased for less than a hundred dollars. Joel, anything come to mind? Yeah. I think if you were to take mine and then make it cumulative, it would exceed a hundred dollars for sure. But I'm going to go off of one instant, which will put it below the threshold, but I'd say gas because you asked for the past six months and it has been summertime and we like yourself love going to the beach and that's truly just one of my favorite things to do is go to the beach with my wife and my two daughters and we've just had such a great summer doing that and so i can get there on a tank of gas which is less than 100 bucks so there's my answer a wonderful investment mm, yeah i like that great answer what piece of advice would you give to a smart driven college student who's about to enter the real world? I would say you could look at it as not that you have disadvantages, but that you could probably try to quickly point out a lot of disadvantages you have for being young right out of school and all that. I look at it as you have a ton of advantages. Some of the biggest being you have time and you have the ability to ask questions and it not be weird. And so there's actually a, uh, a guy that I mentored through our church last year and I remember that was one of the first things I told him. And I told him, I say, hey, I'm not here to just 
like give you advice and like shove opinions down your throat. But like if you ask, like I'll give it. And so he was asking about that. And I was like, man, when you're younger, you can ask questions and ask for help and no one's going to think it's weird. You can get by with so much in that. And I was like, just ask, like, just ask. And you'll be shocked at what people will do or what answers you'll get. And it's funny because at the time, I'll use him as an example. At the time, he was thinking about maybe going to PT school. Didn't know what he wanted to do post-grad. He was like, yeah, I think I want to go do PT. I'm not sure. You know, I could do these other things. And we met up a month later and asked him, you know, hey, what have you been up to this month? He was like, hey, I started shadowing at a physical therapy office. And I was like, really? He was like, yeah, dude, I took your advice. I just found the place. So I showed up and I walked in, had my resume and said, Hey, I think I'm interested in going to PT school. I just don't know a whole lot about it. Could I shadow? And they said, yes. And now they're hiring me for the summer. And I was like, that's great. Whereas if I walked in and said, Hey, I want to learn a lot about PT. Can I shadow? They'd be like, what are you doing? Get out of here. You weirdo. Like you're old, get out of here. You know, but that's the, it, but it kind of goes back to like, that's my biggest thing. I'll always say is don't be afraid to, to use your youth and almost your lack of experience to ask questions because more often than not, people are going to want to help you. So utilize that spot on. And before we get to Zach's, I want to emphasize one area. You said that, uh, that you have so much time when you're young and that is so true because I think back now I have three kids. Now I think back how much time I had, prior to having kids. And I love spending time with my kids and doing stuff for my, with, with, and for my family. I thought I had no time in the world. I thought I had no time. I look back now and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I had so much time. Every phase of life you enter, you look back on the prior phase and realize how much free time you actually had. And then when you start, you know, when you start getting like into our age, like in our thirties, you look back multiple phases, you look back at college. I remember you at college, like, man, I got a lot going on. No, we didn't. Dude, you had nothing going on. Yeah, I was going to two classes a day. You know, is this uh, is this person, this hypothetical person, are they about to graduate or are they still early in their college career? About to graduate. Okay, so they've already majored in something. They're leaving. So I'll change the dial slightly. The only tweak of this advice would be whether the person was early in college or late. If they're early in college, I would say minor in math or just major in it outright. Do not listen to people that tell you that professional undergraduate degrees are useful like business degrees. Just don't do it. Major in STEM of some kind and go to professional afterwards. Do an MBA if you're interested in business. You need a hard skill set, especially now. CS, math, probably primarily those two or both. So that's my that's my slight tweak. So the student that's already uh, been through that gauntlet has already made the mistake of majoring in business. I'm myself a business major, so I can say this. Um, it's a funny side story. My wife is a, a master's. She has a master's in math and an undergraduate degree in mathematics and economics from the same school that I did. So she's way smarter than me. I'm now enrolled in introductory calculus classes at Wake Tech trying to kind of rebuild some lost time. But for the, for the older student that's coming out um, to really kind of operate with what you guys said and maybe color it with some more technical language, be looking for asymmetrical payoffs and options and, and risk and, and be very focused on that. And a lot of what we've been discussing today has revolved around either implicitly or explicitly the discussion of risk. And I think it's worth spending some time thinking about risk, thinking about your risk profile 
starting to try to align that maybe with careers um, and understanding that if you are highly risk averse, that certain careers are probably not going to work for you. So what Joel and I do is maybe not a great fit for someone that's very risk averse, someone that's more moderate or risk seeking. It definitely is, but, but options and asymmetrical payoff is the name of the game. So time is the key variable of an option. And the more time you have, the more optionality you have in your life. And all that means is that as a 20 year old, I have more ability to do things, fail and bounce back. And as you get older, there are certain doors that just close down. And it's, it's good to think of humans as being finite. And I think it's important to consider what that actually means for your life professionally. And and know that there are things professionally that you just practically can't do as you get older. So stop thinking that you can do everything at all points in time and really acknowledge that time time and you are finite and start being aware of that and making conscious decisions around that principle so that you know that when you're 40, that it's going to be really hard to retrain and go back and become like, an astronaut, probably impossible at that, at that age point. Did Zach just end my NBA career before it started? <laughs> Essentially. Yeah. No, 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 no. I, oh. I think hey, good. I, no, good to meet you too. I, I think MBAs are important. I I'm mainly focusing on undergraduate, um, not MBAs, uh, cost benefit payoff is different, but, but no, anyway, no, no, the, the, no the, NBA as in the national basketball association. Oh, oh NBA. as Zach would say, he doesn't keep sports up ball. with, I don't, yeah. I don't keep track of that. He doesn't keep up with sports about. ball. You say NBA, I hear NBA. Yeah, that's just how it goes. So yes, uh, you ended my professional basketball okay, career yes, before I ended it even started. That's actually a great way to frame that thought because like, you should be thinking about it in those terms because that actually makes sense for people. That's real because most people know they can't become a professional ball player of some kind, football or basketball. The three of us weren't going to become professional basketball players. Speak for yourself. Okay? I didn't say football, Joel. Dude, I have long arms. arms. Yeah, I've got. You got ten foot arms, fine. But my point is, I can lay down and dunk. That's okay. That's a, that's I'm going a, to the league. That's a great way of framing that problem. But like, you've got to generalize that. So extend that further and say that, like, okay, well, if I'm 35 and I've got kids and a relationship and a mortgage and all this other stuff, that functionally that will prohibit me from doing certain things. So I need to be aware of that and I need to do them earlier. Um, and it's not to say it, it can't be done or that it's, it's logically impossible. It's just, it's practically almost impossible and, and understanding how that changes as you age and, and the fact that your optionality starts decreasing as you get older, you just have fewer opportunities that you can take risks on and have those payoffs. And it's actually the, the, the payoff curve is shifting and it's actually becoming more expensive to fail now. And, and that starts to weigh on you acutely and it hijacks that risk aversion that's so deeply embedded in our minds and our psyches. And, and as we age, we become more risk averse. And so as you become more risk averse, you see the world of opportunity in a narrow and narrower way. And so it becomes this, this really negative, but reinforcing feedback loop that really doesn't do you any benefit. And so just being conscious of that, like as a, as a 21, when are you, were you 22 when you graduate college? I don't know why I never remember that. Uh, 22, just, yeah, really be thinking uh, actively about risk and, and, uh, and finitude. Um, yeah. Yeah, I could still be all state. <laughs> I will, I'm going to add a quick the, one. The delusion of the infinite. <laughs> ha, 
I'll always be able to just go back and do it, right? You know, I'm 45. Like, oh, no, I got plenty of time. Like, I, I can go back and do it. It's like, no, you can't. My little one I'll add is either start reading more or start reading. There's so many, there's so many good payoffs to that and everyone there's so many different opinions around it. But for me, it's, it's kind of a multifaceted look at it of one. It's just, it's enjoyable. It becomes enjoyable if you didn't read much before and you start reading, but it's just so you can look at it from like a cognitive standpoint. You look at like, because I read more now, I'm willing to read more as far as news articles, journals, white pages, whatever it is, it's because I'm comfortable with it. It's strange, but you can be graduating college and actually have, wait, I think you meant white papers because you do not read the white pages. Do you? Oh, did I say white pages? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. White papers. Yeah. No, I just sit there and do thumb through. I just thumb through the white pages. I just, <laughs> in my uh, mind. you sitting in your glider with your, uh, your Afghan over you, Joel. Yeah. Just, so everyone's Joel, you okay? Yeah, this is some good stuff, man. Okay. Like in my mind, I was trying yeah. to actually rationalize like, okay, he's in real estate. Maybe he's looking for other yeah, deals yeah. in some I, old I school way. utilize the white pages, but I did not sit there and read. You're right. White paper. But I think, and Zach's probably going to have an even stronger opinion than me on this, but I think even to the point of, you know what? Reading can be very relaxing. You're you're going to pick up on new vocabulary that way. It's going to work your brain in a way that watching TV isn't. And I'm not knocking watching TV. Like we have our shows we watch. I love watching sports ball, as Zach would put it. Yeah. So if you start reading a little bit more, you'll just pick up the white pages and never put them down. Because <laughs> it's just you know, there's so much to get through. Yeah. There's like, so when, much data. <laughs> well, when you leave school, like you know, to Joel's point, when you leave school you're no one's forcing you to read anymore. And so a lot of people just stop and it's like anything, it's a skill and it goes away. And, you know, erudition, like, you know, being smart because you're reading and studying on your own, uh, is important. It will make you a better dinner guest that will make you a better partner to somebody, a better spouse, a lover or whatever. I fell prey to this one time of, it felt like every book I read had to be a business book. Or it had to be a faith-based book because that's what you do. Whereas for me now, it's kind of whatever I'm feeling in the moment. So it's like if I'm burned out on a business book or it was just something that had a lot of content, a lot, just a lot to process, you know, I really mix in way more fiction than I used to. And it's really refreshing because I can go through a book like that and then it allows me to dive into something with a little more meat, a little more content and probably digest a little bit better than I would have if I had just stuck with that one. I mean, I'll tell you what's sitting on my various stands right now. I've got Intuition Pumps and Other Thinking Tools by Daniel Dennett. I've got Ordinary Monsters, some giant fiction book that's, I can't remember the name of the author. A Real Analysis book. I've got a Calculus book sitting there somewhere. Um, short Stories by Tolstoy. Dead Souls by Gogol. Yeah, I've got Russians, I've got calculus, I've got famous philosophers, like, I mean, they're, they're all over the place. And, and to Joel's point, like, you can't narrow yourself down and just read one genre. I've got nonfiction, fiction, some combinations of those, like, I mean, it's, it's just, I don't know. It, it's the balance, such, that balance is really important. I've, I've found that. Yeah. 
I because I overdid it like Joel. I I was like all in on the self help books, the stoic books, the whatever. And then I was like, okay, hold on. And then I went the complete opposite pendulum with the whole other way. I was like, okay, only just fiction. a lot of Jody Picoult, right? Exactly, a lot of beach reads. Um, and now I like find that balance where it's like almost every other is is the way to go. All right, I've taken way more of your time. Wait, I do have one caveat. My one caveat to reading more is don't let that be your reason you don't start something though. You might think, oh, to go do this thing, I need to read these 10 books on business and on this and on this industry specifically or whatever it is. I'm not saying don't read them. I'm saying don't let that be the hurdle that stops you from starting. When we so this is funny, I don't even know if you know this. When we started this, I was like, I'm gonna put together the perfect book catalog of of starting this new business. It's gonna be a great mix. Uh, business books, real estate books, the 2018 white pages, right? Like 18 to 20, you know, it's just, I haven't even gotten through the first quarter of 2018 yet, you know? No, but I put together this whole stack and I was like, I'm going to read all of these. Not before I start, I'm going to read all these in my first year. I'm going to read a book a month and that's how I'm going to do it. I read one and I'm not saying that like, honestly, like we just kind of got started and Some of them still sound interesting to me and I will revisit them, but we just got going. And I was like, you know what? I thought I had to read that to do this and I didn't. Starting is a great teacher. Ooh, my caveat is is heed the Lindy effect, uh, which essentially says the older a book is that's still in publication, the more worthwhile it is to read it simply because I, I think the argument rests on Darwinism. If the fitness of the idea, basically the fact the book has continued to be reprinted and, and published and, you know, like the Stoics, it's, that's ancient stuff. I mean, some of the investment books I read are from the you know, 20s and the 30s, um, security analysis, uh, just a, a seminal work of value uh, investment, investing. Uh, but what, yeah. What was the effect called? The Lindy effect. Okay, because I've heard it. Yeah. Described. I've never heard it given. Yeah. Name. Yeah. I, I recently came on to that term. Someone was talking about it and I was like, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, especially if you think about it as just the fit from the fitness standpoint, um, that makes a lot of sense. Now it doesn't mean that by virtue of its survival, it does not necessarily mean that it's good. I emphasize the word necessarily. It just means that it's, there's probably something in there worth looking at, um, because it has lasted this long. Yeah. But that age does not, by virtue of the age, make it better than something that is new or somehow virtuous or good. It just makes it interesting because of that fact. Anything that you guys want to make sure that you touch on, direct listeners to, like anything? Eh, the Waking Up app, I think. That's a, uh, it's a mindfulness app that Sam Harris put together. Uh, I've used it for going on four years now, and it's a... Um, meditating on consciousness. So it's kind of a a blank state. There's not really a spiritual component to it. Um, the app itself has a lot of interesting talks by a number of luminaries, uh, cognitive scientists, you know, folks that are steeped in those various meditation traditions. To me, that's been really helpful to attend 20 minutes a day, you know, just kind of, you know, focusing on just being alive, being aware, being conscious is, uh, is pretty cool. Yeah. And for those of you with kids, that's, that's the time between naps and dinner when you're just staring off the space thinking, I just need to stay alive and keep these kids alive. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, awesome. That was a lot of fun. Thank you for being my guinea pigs on the first 
uh, podcast with the the in-person gear we've built with Joel and Zach. Joel and Zach, thank you guys for being on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yep, thanks for having us. Hey, listener, it's Clay. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Build with Clay podcast. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen so you can discover all the episodes and hear from others about their growth journey. If you know me at all, you know that I love feedback. So please rate the episode and provide your comments so I can grow and be better for you and our guests. For more content, you can find Build With Clay on Instagram at buildwithclay and head to claydavis.substack.com where you can sign up for a bi-weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're inspired to grow.